Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we have to talk to Wendy Hutton. Wendy is a general partner at the Canaan Partners, a venture capital firm that invests in technology firms like Lending Club and healthcare companies like Chimerics. Wendy focuses on healthcare and medicine. She joined uh, Canaan in 2004, and since then, her track record includes seven IPOs and six acquisitions, which is pretty ridiculous. So she went to Stanford for undergrad and MBA at Harvard, where she was a Baker Scholar. So I'm excited to learn more about investing in and uh, ch- on how she's changing the, the landscape of healthcare medicine. And we, we've had a number of VCs on the show, but I think Wendy's the first one who focuses just on healthcare. So this is great. So, Wendy, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you for having me. Definitely. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. And uh, I have a lot of questions about what you're excited about now and what you've learned, but um, can you tell us a little bit about your background before we get into that? Sure. So I grew up with a father who was an entrepreneur who uh, started his own company um, and worked with uh, the startup community in Silicon Valley. So I grew up um, here where the heart of the tech boom occurred and at the genesis of the biotech um, uh, genesis, uh, biotech uh, initiation as well with companies like Genentech. And um, I then joined a venture-backed medical device company that was pioneering a technology into the operating room called pulse oximetry. Mm. There's now tens of millions of pulse oximeters across (laughs) the world. And um, I can't exaggerate on that because they're in every OR and every ICU bed and every PACU. Um, and that was a very pivotal, pivotal five years as that company streaked to $200 million in revenue. And I was wow. in the commercial organization running um, a portion of the marketing and then running business development. And then I was um, the corporate head of the international business unit. I then went to a venture-backed biotechnology company in the monoclonal antibody space that was cutting-edge technology um, in the early 90s. And I've been in venture capital now for 24 years. So um, I embarked on my career at Mayfield Fund and was a general partner through three funds. And Mayfield Fund had quite a storied past in life sciences um, and so that's really where I cut my teeth on the investing end of the business. Interesting. Wow. That is some good, ex- good experience. And, uh, so when growing up with, uh, your dad and him being an entrepreneur, did you know you wanted to kind of get into this or when did you know you wanted to get in this space or was it always like, Oh, I don't want to do what my dad's doing or yeah. How did that work? No, I think I was just steeped in the entrepreneurial culture a bit through that experience. But, um, from from the time I was in school, I was always had a strong interest in biology, and my mother had been a biology major, and we went out and would do a lot of field biology together when I was a kid. Mm. <laughs> so, cool. um, and so I was always interested in field biology, um, ecology, and then 
um, had this uh, great interest in physiology and carried that through as a human biology major in in school. So, um, so I think I was always a very um, driven uh, kid for new knowledge and new frontiers of technology, and I think that's one of the things that makes a hallmark of an investor is are you captivated by cutting-edge technology and do you have that intellectual thirst there? And it is less about if you're going to work with early-stage venture-backed companies, it's less about the financial uh, machinations that you might find for late-stage investors and, and the LBO world and private equity. And early stage venture capital is much more about bets on new technology and do you thrive in that world. And so I always love learning new science. I always love clinical medicine and I always loved learning the the latest breakthrough um, technologies. And so that kind of thread goes all the way back um, for me. Hmm. And, and is that... You know, you were part of some venture back companies, and then how, how did you get into the investment world, and then and, and why? I mean, you kind of explained why because you know you're you're interested <laughs> in multiple areas, but yeah. So um, I became um, uh, somewhat well networked with venture capital players in Silicon Valley. Um, I always had an interest potentially in going to the venture side, so I networked with several leading firms, and they also kind of had me on a short list to pull into their venture-backed operating companies. And so I had had a couple of discussions with Mayfield Fund about joining one of their medical device companies back in the the 80s, (laughs) and that was not the right time, right place, but... um, one of the a couple of the partners I got to know, and when they needed some extra resource to help them incubate some early stage companies, um, they called me up to have a discussion, and so I joined Mayfield really to help lend a hand for some of their very early stage incubation projects, and um, and then found I loved the business and was able to identify new deals to bring forward and that kind of launched my career into venture capital. So what, how did you help the, the Mayfield portfolio companies, these uh, small incubating companies? Well, the, the first uh, major deal that I worked on was, um, was introduced to me as a startup team that was spinning technology um, out of a company at that point called Physio Control up in Seattle, and they had a very junior business guy and a bunch of engineers who were rock stars in the defibrillation field. That company was called Heartstream, but they really didn't have a business plan. They didn't have a commercialization approach to the company. They were pretty unclear how you organize a startup, and I ended up spending better part of half time for the first six months when I joined Mayfield, helping them put together their first business plan, um, help them bring in key resources like an intellectual property lawyer who later became general counsel, um, helping them basically figure out how do you start a company, <laughs> put a project together from the business side. 
And that company went on to be quite successful, went public after we recruited a CEO by the name of Alan Levy. Um, He took that company public. I sat on the board all the way through. And then the company was um, eventually sold to Hewlett-Packard when Hewlett-Packard used to have a very premier medical device division. And that company pioneered a, a technology in automatic external defibrillators, which you now see in airplanes and airports and gyms and hotels. And so it was breakthrough technology and an exciting first deal. And that's how I ended up getting a taste for what it would be like to be both on the in, investor side and sit on a board and help these companies um, grow and thrive. Wow. That's a good uh, good experience. How much did they sell for to HP? Do you remember? I remember it was a seven X deal to Mayfield. Okay, right. that's what's important. <laughs> that's the number that matters. <laughs> nice. right. I don't remember the exact <laughs> the exact takeout number. You're you're taxing my memory going no, back about twenty fine. years. <laughs> And, and what was the first company? And maybe that was the one that you you kind of found and nurtured and said, "Hey, you know, I'm really interested in you guys. Let's, you know, can we put a deal together?" What uh, was um, it? So you know, finding an opportunity is only a really that's a that's a certainly a, a very important step. I did not find the team at Heartstream, yeah. but I was there from the very start before the first funding occurred. Wow. So I really, that was my first deal that I took all the way through. Yeah. That must have been exciting. Okay. And so um, how you were at Mayfield for how many years? I was there through nine years and then I um, left Mayfield and did a small seed fund with, in conjunction with uh, Johnson and Johnson Hmm. and then came over to Canaan in 2004. And I would say my practice at Keenan and Mayfield were very similar um, in terms of having a large fund with a lot of stature um, where you could execute on taking deals all the way through. Interesting. Okay. And so I'm I'm curious a little bit what you've learned. And I know it's hard to distill into a, a short conversation like this, but so we're in Madison, Wisconsin. There's a lot of biotech companies. I know lots of investors who have lost a lot of money <laughs> on different companies. And, uh, you know, they might invest in 30 companies and none of them work out or very few. And uh, and I know not all your companies are biotech. and um, But, you know, how you know how do you get a sense? You've gotten a lot of winners. How in the world have you uh, kind of gotten a sense for – you know, de-risking a company or understanding the risks um, at such an early stage? Well, I think investors come in all flavors and styles. And so it's it's interesting when you try to pattern match of, well, what makes an investor exceptional or what makes an investor successful? And, you know, I think each one of us who have been fortunate to work with great entrepreneurs and great companies, I think our, our, our pattern matching is almost a case of one. So I can talk about myself, but I can't extrapolate that <laughs> necessarily <laughs> no, to the next not. early stage <laughs> investor who might be an MD, PhD and have a very technical approach to investing. But um, 
I would say that um, there are three or four um, areas that that you know have always been part of the mix that have produced outstanding results to me, and one is um, the is the early evidence of the technology and the depth and strength of the technology, be it a med a medical device or a therapeutic on the biopharma side. Um, is that evidence really strong and is it ready for development or is it still a research project? And my, my um, template is I want to work in, on technologies that are ready for development, which means they're ready to, they're, they're soon to be ready in the clinic and that we're not learning a lot of physiology on the job. Um, I think a lot of folks get very enthralled by incredibly exciting science and discoveries, but that technology may have a lot of learning to do on what actually happens when you put that pill in a human body and you find out, does it work or not? And inherently, there's always a lot of risk with new drugs. But if you don't understand the basic physiology of the disease or you've unlocked a new target, um, you're taking on that much more risk. So, um, So I think that's First and foremost is is the technology um, both time and money ready to move into development. You need a strong team to do that with great experience, and you need the intellectual property around that technology to be able to protect and make that that um, you know the the investment dollars worthwhile. Because if you don't have protection, then then you really won't see the value on the exit. And then lastly, I think it needs to be, you need to work on things that are important. You know, do they make a difference in patient outcomes? Is it an important marketplace which can be sizable? You know, 500 million to a billion is kind of table stakes. So there's a range of issues that are, that are very important in that early decision making. And if some of those are missing and too many are missing, then you're just stacking too many risks. And, you know, that is where the technology itself, you know, won't overcome small markets or too much target risk or a team that doesn't have the drug development experience to take a product forward because they don't know all the steps. So, um, you know, there's a, it's never one thing, but there are some key tenets which are very important to be a successful early stage investor. Gotcha. And if you really like the tech, would you bring in kind of what you did at your first company, bring in team members? So maybe the technology is great, but if the team doesn't have that drug development experience. So I'll give you an example of one recent success, which was um, a company I'm really proud of, um, a company called Labris. And Labris uh, was started based on um, an antibody for the prevention of chronic um, migraine. Hmm. And this antibody had been under development at Pfizer, and it had 30 or $40 million already invested in it, and Pfizer had shelved the drug product. They decided they didn't want to take wow. it forward, but they already had clinical data. So an incredible asset 
that they had, the project had been killed by a strategic review, a commercial assessment, and Pfizer decided to put it on the shelf. Um, one of my colleagues in the venture industry knew knew about this drug, was very intrigued, worked to license it out. I was lucky to partner with Corey Goodman from VentBio, and the two of us then committed to putting together a Series A funding syndicate, but we didn't have a management team. So literally, we had to break, build, we had a lot of assets. We had great potential IP. We had great data from this antibody. We have very significant unmet clinical need in, in patients who suffer from chronic migraines and are debilitated by the condition. We knew the target. It was a validated target in small molecules, but there were safety problems there, so we knew that an antibody could have a safer profile. There were an incredible number of assets around this project. We had no management team. Hmm. So that's where your experience comes in when you've done this a few times. And we were very fortunate to bring on board two key individuals that made that program work very well. One was the CEO, very experienced CEO, Steve James, who was just in my office meeting me for lunch. And that's why I was tardy. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Who who had um, already had... Um, success under his belt as CEO and then sold his prior company to Amgen. And he came on and took this on. And then we also got a chief medical officer who had been running the headache franchise for Merck Hmm. as the the medical director. And he had a passion for migraine and loved this antibody program and came on board and ran the clinical program for us. Um, And so, and around that core uh, key, you know, group of executives, and we were able to build out the rest of the team, which we sort of hand-selected for each individual slot. And the company then was acquired by Teva for $825 million in in. development milestones and they slotted it into their clinical development pipeline and have just announced two successful phase three clinical trials. So it looks like we've got a real drug on our hands and it's going to help literally millions of patients in this unmet clinical need. So really I had a, a critical part to play but nothing compared to the team and the fundamental technology. And, you know, sometimes you're you're lucky enough to be at the right place with the right insight. And several other VCs turned it down because they didn't understand chronic migraine. They didn't couldn't see their way to doing it without a team. And we were very fortunate to get these key first drivers on the executive team and the rest became history and it became their history because they really made it happen. So, um, you know, that's a little bit of a great story. I wish they were all that great. (laughs) 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 That's pretty good. But, uh, but I, but it is a, but it is a, but it is a great one. And the, and the clinical trial data just got announced in the last two weeks and was rolled out at the big, national headache meeting and you know so we're all 
we're all so excited that now patients have a new option and it's really going to help these patients. I mean, there's, they were seeing on average 50% reductions of migraines a month when, and these are people who have 15 mm-hmm. to 20 migraines oh in a month. So they, so they really are, they're really in, um, you know, they're really in very debilitated by their condition. Wow. That's, so, that's exciting. Yeah. Interesting. How long did it take? Like when did you first um, put the team together until on, until now? What year was it? that? You, do you remember what year? So we put that team together in about uh, four months in okay. total. Um, and part of what we were fortunate is the chief medical officer and the CEO were so well connected and plugged in that they, um, they really attracted key talent. I mean, we all, we all pitched in the syndicate and the board pitched in to help recruit the key members of the team. Um, it was a very fast turnaround though, to exit the, the space really heated up around this target for migraine and, the Labrys antibody program was was run by a terrific team and had great um, differentiation compared to the competitors. And so, actually, that exit was under two years. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so it's now been that. about it's now been about uh, since we started that company. It's now been about uh, four and a half years, something like that. But that's fast. Yeah, four and a half years would be would be the time frame, but it really went very swiftly because we were building on so many key uh, key value drivers. And and so when you and Kanan were kind of essentially one of the founders, right? Do you get do you take a larger equity stake when that happens? I've always been curious how that works, and if, it, if this is too uh, too intimate, you can tell me to back down, but. <laughs> Um, so, you know, in this particular case, uh, we took our preferred shareholding and this is part of what we think we do. We, you know, we lend our companies a hand. We try to work hand in glove with entrepreneurs and we, um, we want them to feel like, you know, our whole team is, is at their, is a resource to them. And I think that's the sort of way that an early stage VC can build um, the relationships with some of the best and the brightest minds. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay. And, and one more thing that you said before about, uh, you know, your, when you analyze a potential investment, you, you look at the, the depth of technology, but you know, how do you, and the, you, you don't want to be learning physiology after you've <laughs> given them money or kind of learning the pathways and whatever, what it might be but so how do you get a good feel for that is it a lot of good animal studies and how do you know those animal studies going to translate properly to humans i'm thinking especially like therapeutics so in the theory, therapeutics realm um we look at uh at opportunities where is there a known target for that drug and okay. has that target been validated we look at repurposing known drugs where there might already be a safety profile and we can 
we can run studies fairly quickly to determine efficacy. Um, you know, peeling down the onion a bit, um, we do look at animal studies as um, an important indicator when the animal studies tend to be predictive of success in the clinic. And I would say there's some areas where it's highly predictive um, what happens in animals, and that would be in areas like in vitro tests and animal studies in anti-infectives, for example. And those clinical trials tend to be very short read-offs because you either have the bug and you've killed, killed the bug or you, you still have the pathogen on board. And those are areas where we see the preclinical packages tend to be highly predictive of mm. success in the clinic and early stage clinical data tends to be very predictive of downstream success. Um, but there are always things you learn in the clinic, so you can't avoid that entirely. It's just how do you stack the deck in your favor? Areas where it's not very predictive are complicated areas in metabolic medicine, for example, where or in, in neuro, where you might be trying to treat schizophrenia or depression, you know, there are not good animal models <laughs> yes. to really figure out behavior aspects. These are huge drug categories, but very complicated to get predictive data out of a preclinical package and very hard with early clinical data to have enough statistical significance to be able to predict, gee, are you going to be that much better than a, than a, than another behavior modulator, uh, uh, Xanax or uh, Prozac or something like that, where you really have to be demonstrably better versus some of those big drug categories. And, and so those would be areas we would stay away from. Okay, gotcha. And, and so how has your uh, investment thesis kind of changed since, well, you could, you could go back to your Mayfield days or since joining Canaan just in the last uh, um, 10, year, 10, 15 years? Or has it changed? <laughs> so, so we're we're always we're always putting a new lens on um, what's exciting and what's important. Um, but I but I would say since if you if you just go back say a handful of the last decade and say what has really changed in healthcare and what has really um, uh, been been a, a some significant hurdles is probably. Uh, top of the list would be con considering um, a re reimbursement approach, pricing, and reimbursement strategy right out of the gate. Mm. And if there are too many reimbursement hurdles, particularly in medical devices, it's going to be a novel therapy, um, and that pathway looks um, to have to be an arduous pathway, which will take many years. Um, you know, those, we used to think important breakthrough technologies could carry themselves, and I would say we don't think that anymore, because you can chew up so much money um, trying to prove out the clinical value enough to get drive reimbursement that you can, you can kind of lose your shirt doing that. So... That's a very significant piece, I think, uh, in medical devices, um, 
the clinical regulatory bar has gotten much higher. It's much longer and more arduous. And so that is a big factor in our investment thesis. And then in therapeutics, um, I would say one of the biggest changes, which has really advantaged uh, venture-backed companies and has really enhanced our ability to drive a thesis, is that pharmaceutical companies have consolidated quite a bit and outsourced a lot of their research. In other words, they eliminated a lot of their early stage discovery and pipeline in order to drive um, financial returns. And so we spend a lot of time, whereas probably in 2004, we didn't spend very much time at all asking pharma, well, what are you interested in in your franchise areas? Now we spend a lot of time with the Mercs and the Pfizer's and the Novartis's and the Tevas of the world saying, well, what are you interested in? How important is neuro to you? What are you interested in your oncology franchise? Where are the holes in your franchise? What kind of companies are you looking to buy? And that really informs our investment thesis significantly because they're really good at late stage clinical development and marketing. And at this point in time, they're trying to fill those late stage pipelines with opportunities um, that are more likely than not to be venture capital backed. And of late, somewhere on the order of 60 or 70% of the newly approved drugs are now coming from the biotechnology, early stage biopharma um, community as opposed to big pharma. So that's a real, that's a big flip in terms of where the program started. That's a very, that's, that's a, those are some great answers. And so that's very interesting. And so with the pharma, when you go ask them like, Oh, are you interested in neuro? I mean, is, are they looking at a timeline for, you know, the next 10 years? Cause you know, by the time let's say, okay, let's go find some neuro companies, you know, obviously it takes a little while to find them, incubate them, get them ready to uh, eventually maybe sold. Um, yeah. So are they looking far out when they say that they're interested in certain areas? So, so I would say it's twofold. One, we're looking to introduce them to our, our portfolio okay. companies, okay. which we hope are a little bit nearer term. Yeah. I think it's pretty tough for them to take, tell us their 10 year strategic plan. Um, but if we're interested in a company, for example, that might be one year from the clinic, and we think we can move through a phase one and phase two program in two or three years. Well, that's more like a four-year time frame from when we'd be interested in maybe taking that data to pharma and saying, would you like to transact on this opportunity and put it into your later stage pipeline? Gotcha. So I think we, t- we take kind of a three to five-year view. That makes sense. Okay. Gotcha. And all right, and so we got a little time, but we're running out quickly. And of course, I have tons of questions. But uh, so one of them is like, can you tell us about one of your uh, portfolio companies that you're excited about, and you're probably excited about all of them. So 
If you choose one or two, and uh, you can put this disclaimer that you love all your children. And uh, no, <laughs> I love all my children. Yeah, How'd right. you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so one company which I, I think is interesting because this is a crushing problem for you know how we're spending healthcare dollars right now, and and complications downstream in the system is uh, Gluco, which is um, really a convergence company for me in the digital health space using um, data from all of the variety of medical devices that diabetes companies use, uh, diabetes patients, excuse me, misspoke there, use to manage their daily disease. And diabetes patients... um, are awash in data. The problem is they're awash in data that's individual data points that they can't understand their trends, they can't understand it against the backdrop of their disease necessarily. They're so busy managing their disease day to day that they may be not seeing opportunities for with their physician for titrating drugs, for better care, for better patterns over the course of what their daily lives present to them. And by pulling data in an FDA-compliant fashion from insulin pumps, from glucometers, from continuous glucose um, uh, meter CGMs, and integrating that into one platform, it puts in the palm of the patient's hand all their data that they can see all these these um, patterns and they can understand when they're in compliance and when they're not in compliance. Likewise, for the physician, the physician is no longer flying blind because they can actually see the data that the patient is data the patient's actual data as opposed to asking the patient how they've been doing, how they've been feeling. Instead, in a snapshot um, data report, they can see exactly what's been going on with the patient over the course of the prior 120 days and thereby create that appointment to help that patient manage their disease. And, you know, the last thing that diabetes patients want to do is spend more time managing their disease. They want data which helps them, but not forces them to engage more. They want to engage less. They want things to go better for themselves. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and so I think what, what Gluco is providing is the analytics, the algorithms, the infrastructure that has been needed um, because they're playing with all parties. And there's a lot of insights that I feel that, um, from Canaan's perspective, we bring to the party to work with Gluco because we know pharma well, we know the med tech space well, we know regulate, regulated um, the regulated industry very well. And that's driven a lot of value for that company. So Gluco is poised. They've, they've been selected by um, the largest pharma franchise in, in insulin, Novo Nordisk, has chosen them as their digital health partner. And they have done partnership deals with all the leading 
um, med tech diabetes franchise players such as LifeScan and Medtronic and Insulate and Dexcom. And, um, and I think this standardized platform has real potential to bring to the healthcare system somewhat what has been lacking in digital health is a, is a very usable, interoperable system um, that can move patient outcomes hmm. for the better. So I'm, I'm quite excited about this company. And again, it's, it's sort of at the end of the day where I started the conversation is, you know, I want to work on things that matter. I don't want to work <laughs> yeah. on a scheduling system. I want to work on something that really changes the, the game. How do we move the needle for patients who struggle with this disease every day? How do we move the needle for them? How do we, how do we improve their compliance? How do we improve their drug regimens? And how do we show that when they have this data at their fingertips, it helps them make better decisions and, and helps their physician make better decisions. And and what about the, and maybe they don't need it, but the reimbursement strategy for something like that, is there one or is it more out of straight out of pocket for something like that? So the company is, has a number of different um, ways that um, they've constructed their business model Um and the providers, big health systems that are under risk for taking care of patients with diabetes um, need this data to be able to manage that patient population better. Disease management companies who sell to um, to payers or they sell to self-insured employers to take care of their population of their employees that have diabetes. All of them need tools. Um, and so the company actually is, is being, uh, paid for use of this data in a number of different contexts. Um, and some of our partners are in the med tech space and the pharma space where they know that they can show value of their technologies by collecting the data, um, on a day-to-day better basis and it helps them um, ensure that they continue to get reimbursed for important technologies because they have the data to show outcomes. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a bit of a complex answer to your question. Um, a little bit harder on a podcast context to explain this. <laughs> yes, no, that, that's a, <laughs> but, but there's a variety of revenue streams for a company like Gluco to be successful. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. And we're pretty much out of time here. My last quick question for you is what do you like to do when you're not um, helping create the future of healthcare? And maybe that's all you do, but uh, do you like to read or do anything outside of work? Well, I'm a pretty voracious reader. Um, I've been in a book club for longer than I've been in venture, so about 28, 29 years. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> and, um, so I love to read. Um, I'm a big outdoors person, so I love to hike and ski and sail and bike. And um, 
And I have brought up two kids. My youngest child is graduating from college this this week. So oh, wow. that that That's has cool. been a big outside of work endeavor to <laughs> <a> um <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um and then I also am involved in the community. Um I sit on two nonprofit boards that I'm very excited about. One is bringing surgical um, capacity and for reconstructive uh, needs of the of people in impoverished situations overseas, and for repair of burn and trauma wounds and congenital deformities that that nonprofit is called Resurge. And then I'm also involved in the largest land trust locally called the Peninsula Open Space uh, Trust. And um, and if you come to the Bay Area and you see a lot of open space on the hillsides, uh, this land trust has been responsible for creating a lot of the beautiful open space for hiking and biking and and uh, preservation of our local environment here, which uh, we all love. Wow, sounds sounds so. like, sounds like you need more to do. Just kidding. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I think you stay busy. Wow. Well, that's great. I mean, and, and that's a good place to end because you know, I definitely really enjoyed this and appreciate your time. And I mean, just hearing your stories, but also kind of just your, you know, you're really into helping people, and that's I mean, that's kind of the beauty of venture capital and healthcare, you know, that a lot of the, most of your investments are really meaningful, you know, beyond, you know, hopefully doing okay financially. But, uh, so yeah, it's been fun to hear kind of your passion behind the investments. <laughs> and that, yeah. Well, if, if we can have, if we can have a win-win with companies, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's always very exciting. And I think almost all of you know, virtually all of my most successful investments have been um, real, you know, when you really start to provide benefits and and value to patients. And, you know, for most of us involved in the field, that's what gets us up and really excited about what we do. I mean, it's hard work being an entrepreneur to start out. (laughs) So anyway, well, I I really appreciate, Dave, you taking the time to talk to me today and, um, and, and listening to my story has been very kind of you to um, drill down with me on some of the uh, work that I've done over the years, and Keenan's been privileged to be a part of. Definitely, and we yeah, I, we really appreciate hearing your story, and uh, we wish wish you good luck in the future. And I, I appreciate everyone for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I greatly appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.